The pulpit is a sacred space in every church. Because from the pulpit, we declare the word of God, teaching of the word of God, and it is declared as truth. And as such, the pulpit is a sacred place. This fall, I had the opportunity to invite one of our members, a person who's been here for a long time, to teach the youth group class on Sunday mornings. And we also started meeting every other week for coffee to give me a chance to get to know this young man, uh, a student, a freshman at University of Eau Claire, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. And uh, as we talked and spent time together, looking at life, looking at challenges, um, the university is a real challenge. I want you to know it's a challenge out there. It's not an easy life to be a Christian on a secular college campus today. And as we talked and this young man shared his faith journey, he shared things that he's learning from the Word, it was very obvious that he was spending time in the Word, reading the Word of God, and he shared things with me that he was learning. And one of those coffee times at, at the Goat Coffee House down on Water Street, he was sharing some things from his heart, things that he'd learned from the Word. And I said, you know, it'd be really good if you could share some, some of that sometime with the congregation. And I said, how would you like to preach some Sunday? And there wasn't a hesitation. He said, sure. <laughs> I said, you don't want to think about it? Oh, yeah, I'll think about it, but I'm, yeah. So I invited Quentin Anger to come and share the word this morning. He's going to be preaching. So um, I've known him since he's been about nine. So he's been a, we've watched him grow up in, in this church, and you've known him a lot longer, many of you. So um, I want us to just welcome to the pulpit this morning, Quentin Anger. Quentin, come on. Now is it working? There we go. Can you guys hear me all right? All right, perfect. Good morning. I come to you this morning as an 18-year-old college student. I've already lived my life, yet I've still seen so much. Whether it be my 13 years in the public school system, my hundreds of hours within extracurricular activities, or my first semester of college, I've seen a lot. Maybe not as much as some of you more veteran players of the game of life, but I have a good start. I'm not sure about you, but there are many different emotions that I have experienced amidst my journey. Whether it be pure joy of getting a new puppy, the rush of excitement, uh, the rush of excitement of reaching the summit of a mountain after a day's worth of hiking, or the unrelenting giddy feeling of freeing yourself from high school after walking across the graduation stage. It's all cemented in my mind. But one of the emotions that creates some of the most memorable and uh, rec- uh, vivid memories is hopelessness. While I won't go into personal specifics, I'm sure we all have some moments that separate itself from all the others when we're asked about our own experiences with hopelessness. 
the feeling of not knowing whether we will have the strength to get up out of bed tomorrow or even finish the day today. However, there is good news amidst these troubling thoughts. Struggles and moments of hopelessness are universal. Everyone can relate in some way or another. And this applies not only today, but across time as well. Today we will be looking at the story of Job and how he handled a seemingly hopeless situation as well as the subsequent outcomes of these decisions. Now, while within the story of Job, we can see an outstandingly righteous man. By following God's perfect and good will, Job has been blessed in all facets of life. We will begin in Job chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. This is in the New International Version. It says, This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, and 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Now Job had everything that anyone could ever want in this time. He had money, fame, a large family, and God's favor. So I'm sure anyone who doesn't know the story is probably going, well, what does that have to do with faith? It's clear he has everything that he's ever wanted, and that God has rewarded him for said faith. Why wouldn't he trust God, since God has given him everything? Well, the good news for those individuals is that this isn't a newly founded objection. We actually see in just a few verses later, starting at verse 9, that Satan himself presents himself before God and claims, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything that he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now you stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well, then everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now you see, when Satan left, he went down to test Job's faithfulness. It says in verse 14 through 19, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters are feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind swept from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, and it collapsed on them, and they are dead. And I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. So what's happened so far? God is approached by Satan, touting that Job is only faithful due to God's generosity, and God agrees to let Satan test Job. He has everything taken away from him. His house, his livestock, his servants, and even his family are all gone. But do you know what his response is? Verse 20 through 22 says, At this Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now finding that Job has still not turned from God, Satan again confronts God and gets permission to torment Job physically. In chapter 2, verse 7, it says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Now this isn't in my notes, but I went on a 14 and a half mile hike on Friday and my feet hurt. And so I can't even imagine how Job was feeling in this moment. Yet in spite of everything that Job experienced, did he turn from and curse God in his sorrow and anger? No. In verse 9 and 10, it says, His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. Yet he replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. 
Now, even in the presence of his own wife's doubt and anger, Job maintained his integrity. Isn't that crazy? I mean, even amidst our own lives, we face different, uh, different speculation and different criticisms from other people, and it's hard to not let that affect us. And yet, Job was given every opportunity to be angry and turn away from God, but he still did nothing wrong. As far as he was aware, he had never sinned against God, and, or he had paid for said sin, and yet God still took everything good that he had. His own wife even tried to get him to denounce God, despite all the good that they both had experienced. Now, this was blasphemous enough, having his own wife try to get him to turn from God. But the story continues with three of Job's friends coming to him during his time of struggle. Now, I don't know about you. When you're ill, maybe some of your friends show up. They might bring soup, a movie, or potentially some coffee or tea. While it might be different between everyone's individual experiences, all these methods of support are positive and helpful with the intent of trying to make you feel better, both physically and emotionally. Now, while we know better now, the common belief in the 5th century was that suffering and illness was a direct result of sin by an individual, a family member, or a servant under the authority of the individual suffering. Now, unlike our modern expectations of what we'd expect our friends to do during this time of trouble, Job's friends were quickly to try to deduce why Job was suffering. While their individual arguments vary from each other with specifics, all the accusations by Job's friends are the same. He must have done something that unleashed God's wrath. Now, we know as the readers that he hasn't done anything wrong and that there's a malicious force at work, but Job and his compatriots didn't. So the next 29 chapters are spent going over the discourse of the four men. Job begins his conversation sorrowfully, talking about how he curses the day he was born. And even more so, he wished he was never born. His life is so dreadful that he would take everything good that he's experienced so far and throw it all away just so he wouldn't be in torment. His friends, on the other hand, are tearing down Job's defense with every rebuttal. However, there is a shift in Job's response starting in chapter 9. Job is shifted from a sorrowful and resentful tone in an irritated yet hopeless one. He began talking about how he couldn't find God no matter where he searched in chapter 9 verse 11 and how he would be unable to properly plead his innocence and only plead for mercy in front of God in chapter 9 verse 15. These are realistic questions that we may find ourselves asking. Throughout all our struggles, who are we to prove our innocence? Who are we to say whether we deserve an experience, to experience situations or moments and seasons the way they are presented? Now, these are all questions that are answered towards the end of the book. God answers Job and addresses these very questions in chapter 38, verse 1 through 7. He says, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. You stretched a measuring line across it? Or, where, or what were its footing set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. Now, who are we to judge the way that the Lord has things play out within our lives? When we can only see from our perspective, when we can only see the way things affect us personally, how can we question the omnipotent and perfect, perfectly loving God who paves the way for us? Like it says in Psalm 119, 105, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
So what makes us qualified to determine what is good or bad for us? Are there not lessons to be learned through our hardships? Now in Job's final defense, beginning in chapter 29, his anger, sorrow, confusion, and self-righteousness gives way to his faith in God. What once was anger and critique became reminiscence and humbleness. Laying out his final argument, Job gives into God's unknown will and declares that if he has sinned against God and wronged man, let God punish him to the fullest. And with that final decree, Job withheld the rest of his breath. Now what's amazing is that following this extremely humbling moment, where God has the opportunity to punish Job for all his questions, his skepticism, his frustration, his hopelessness, yet there's one final statement that he makes in chapter 42, verse 7 through 9. He says, After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken truth about me as my servant Job has. So now, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice the burnt offerings for yourself. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you accordingly, according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant has. Through all of this, all the anger, the questions, the doubt, the frustration, the sorrow, and the regret, it all led up to this one moment where God proclaims that Job is still a faithful servant and those who accused him were the real transgressors. Even though Job's companions had a logical and seemingly righteous approach, because they were attributing malice to Job and God, they were condemned. Now, what does this all mean? While I certainly don't have 7,000 sheep or goats, not only does God understand our short-sightedness within these troublesome times, or the difficult seasons we may experience, he extends some grace. Not once did God smite Job for being angry at his circumstances or for cursing the, w- the day he was born. Yet why is that? Because through all of this, Job never turned from God. Despite all the influence of his circumstances, his friends, and even his wife, Job never turned from God. His faithfulness was present through every stage of his trial, and he was blessed afterwards. And finally, what does this mean for us? While there might not be some cosmic bet between God and Satan over our lives, how does this apply to our difficult circumstances? Whether it be a physical illness, a mental health struggle, or the seemingly impossible task of making it to tomorrow, God is with us every step of the way. And we can be sure of this, for Deuteronomy 31.6 says, be, sure, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Now God also knows that we're humans. We make mistakes. We experience emotions. He understands that we might get frustrated with our situations and the seasons we find ourselves and the sorrows that we, that we experience. But regardless of how we feel, we must not turn from God. He has a plan that he's orchestrating behind the scenes And it's important that even amidst our frustrations and sorrows, that we trust him and we do not fall away. Don't be like Eliphaz and Job's other companions, for they were condemned by God. But through our faith, we can be blessed and restored to glory through his perfect will and love. Now let this be a reminder as we go into the new year 
that regardless of what is thrown our way, not only are there lessons to be learned, but there's God's love to be enjoyed and shared. Let us pray. Dear God, I thank you for bringing everyone here today to hear this message. And I just thank you for using me to, to share this message regardless of my, my lack of a formal education in uh, biblical theology or anything like that, but that you can use me as an imperfect vessel for your perfect word. And God, I pray as we go into this new year and into the, the week and the month, that you would remind us to turn to you in our times of struggle, in the times of hurt, and that you would bless us through this perseverance. And God, please just allow us to feel your presence and remind us that you are in charge of everything, and that you are orchestrating all things for your good, even if we don't see it. And God, bless everybody as they drive home. For I know the roads are getting slippery, but just be with them through everything. In Christ's name, amen.